Happy Monday, kitty cats. And if you are listening to this program today, then I know that you are a person who cares about their liberty. It's also a pretty good chance that you're pretty tired of waiting around for political change, tired of being duped by political parties and politicians filling you with hope and then never coming through. Well, guess what? If you're ready to take matters into your own hands, then I want to tell you about an amazing community called the Nomad Network. This is the number one community for liberty-minded people just like you who want to create freedom in their lifetime by focusing on entrepreneurship, investment, and income mobility. I have personally been involved with this group for some time now. I hopped on because I got into a stage in my life where I realized that I was ready to take things to the next level. I was sick of just talking about my liberty, and I wanted to take action to actually achieve that liberty. And the Nomad Network has been an incredible hub for doing just that. You got people in there posting their W's, uh, talking about their businesses, helping each other out, hiring each other for jobs. It truly is an amazing network. It is a little bit of that building the arc that we talk about so much, building that next pathway, building that community so that we can thrive while the rest of the world just burns around us or does whatever it's going to do. Whether you already have an existing business idea or you just want to network with like-minded people, the NoBand Network is the place for you and you can join for free right now by heading over to www, and you do need the www, by the way, www.nomadnetwork.app slash lion, no S, lion. Take control of your own future. Seize your own liberty. Join the Nomad Network today. We need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools, but the inspiration to break free from the system. Welcome to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly dose of education, inspiration, and real-world application from the top minds in the liberty movement. If you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. We need to be better people. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, kitty cats, I am here live, at least for our supporters on uh, both Patreon and Locals. Joining me today is the former chief of staff for Congressman Ron Paul and the current president of the Mises Institute. Very pleased to welcome back Jeff Deist. Jeff, first question, are you ready to roar? Hey, Mark, great to hear from you. Thanks for having me back. Sure thing, Jeff. And uh, you know, it's, uh, I was talking to you before the show. It's been uh, maybe four or five years since you've actually been on. Um, so I'm kind of curious, just from a personal standpoint, I've heard you talk about it you know, in a more general way, but I'm kind of curious how the last 18 months or so of this whole COVID stuff has affected your life personally, because it certainly affected mine greatly uh, being in Los Angeles during much of it. But I'm curious how it affected you just down there in Alabama. Well, we've been very fortunate in the sense that I think Alabama has been more open than a lot of states, maybe not as open as I'd like it to be. Uh, I really hate flying. Uh, it's, it's definitely ruined flying in airports. I, I hate the mask, uh, but the only time I will wear it is on a flight, and that's it. And I've ex- been experimenting with how far you can get in airports without one. And it's actually pretty surprising if you just walk confidently and, and act like you have a purpose until you're actually at the gate for a flight. There's really no one who's sort of in charge of you in, you know, all that way through. Sometimes the TSA people will make you put it on to get through the the actual physical check of your bag. But apart from that, it's actually pretty surprising. Uh, you can sit pretty comfortably, walk pretty comfortably through an airport. So that's that's something I suggest people try. 
Uh, but we are on our own building here at the Mises Institute, which has been nice because we've been kind of a haven for the last, what is it, 20 months now, where we could come to work, we could uh, not wear masks, we could uh, you know, not socially distance, not have to be at home. So uh, all in all, pretty lucky. And, and imagine uh, working at the Mises Institute, you don't get a lot of the questions I would get at my uh my employer. Um, like, uh, Oh, have you gotten your vaccine yet? So <laughs> I imagine it's a little bit different of a, of a working environment than a lot of people, uh, a lot of people have to deal with. Yeah. I mean, that's an absolutely insane question to ask a stranger. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when people do that, I, it just, it's absolutely shocking how degraded we become in our interpersonal relationships. When we would say that to someone, that's like saying, have you had your, a proctology exam? <laughs> uh, you know, and the answer to that is none of your goddamn business. Yeah. That's the only answer. And of course, in the current environment, everybody knows uh, uh, that that means no, I haven't gotten a vaccine, um, unfortunately, but that's where we are. I'm curious, have you noticed uh, any kind of like uptick or increased interest in, in the Mises Institute in particular and the, the ideas that you guys talk about during this time? Yes. I mean, it's in a sense, it's unfortunate. Uh, COVID was very good for our website traffic. Uh, good for our fundraising, uh, not not just COVID, but the fiscal and monetary insanity which it engendered, ostensibly engendered. I think they they want to do that stuff anyway. Uh, so in a sense, I guess uh, the Mises Institute is countercyclical. In other words, there was a lot of interest in our organization, our website, our articles during the 2007-2008 crash when people were trying to figure out what was going on with stocks, with housing, with monetary policy. Uh, and and now again with the with the most recent I would call a, a crash of 2020, uh, where the federal government sort of took over and started giving people money to sit home, giving employers money to pay people to sit home, telling people they didn't have to pay their rent. I mean, all this insanity. Uh, yeah, it it drove some interest to our site, and and I w- I wish people would just come to our site or or get interested in economics, even if it's not the kind of economics I consider sound. Just any economics. I wish people would be a little more inquisitive and inquiring and curious in their lives about what's what's going on, rather than just sort of focusing on, uh, you know, their own. Just the parameters of their own life and not worrying about it so much because I think it's becoming increasingly clear that we all have a little bit of responsibility uh, to be more engaged because these psychopaths are uh, running us into the ground and they're doing it pretty quick. So uh, I hope that uh, interest in the Mises Institute is not a bellwether for hard times. Well, of um, my experience and that of many others, it's like kind of, it's kind of like a, once you go Mises, it's hard to go back. Once you understand economics in, in that way, from the sort of, you know, um, Misesian human action perspective, it's really hard to ever, at least I like to think, at least it was for me, <laughs> uh, hard to look at, you know, mainstream economics again in, in the same way. Well, it absolutely is. And the Nobel Prize, which was awarded just earlier this week, uh, to some labor economists shows you what a clown world we're living in. I mean, this idea that we can't know whether raising the price of something reduces the demand for it. And when I say raising the price, I mean wages in this example. Um, that, that's obviously crazy. Uh, we've become so enamored of mathematical or statistical or empirical 
economics that we don't even have an underlying theory to explain the world anymore. And that's, I think, gotten economics into a very dangerous place where it's not only not helping us. In other words, the, the, the goal of a social science like economics is to help us. It's to help us understand the world better and hopefully become wealthier and happier as a result. And it's not doing that. I would say economics as a profession is actually doing active harm right now in the sense that it is promoting pseudo-political jargon like labor economics. It's promoting um, a statistical, rigid, mechanistic view of how economies work that we know is false. Uh, It's perpetuating falsehoods. It's giving a lot of political and intellectual cover to central bankers and to big spending politicians. So, um, you know, economics is not in a healthy place today as a profession. I do see a lot of parallels between uh, sort of the hubris of uh, mainstream economists who think they can centrally plan everything um, to the same people that sort of try to centrally pr- plan COVID. At least you know, call, calling them having hubris might be like the the, the sort of the nice version of the, the nice way to look at it. You know, you could look at it in a much more insidious way as well. Uh, but but it does seem that everywhere we go, the central planners sort of have that, that same mindset of we know what's best and we're going to tell you what to do and with very little understanding of how humans actually interact on an individual basis. Well, I mean, we have had a partially centrally planned economy in the United States for almost 20 months now. And the supply shocks, the, uh, the uh, you know, supply chain shocks we're seeing is part of that. This is the unintended consequences or maybe intended for all I know uh, behind these machinations. I mean, you can't just send people home and shut down the world or part of the world and expect to flip a switch 20 months later and have everything come back online. That's not how things work. I mean, entrepreneurs are risking capital. They have to look into the future. They have to make decisions about whether they're going to be able to source all the, you know, the various factors of production that are required to, to produce the good or service that they sell. They have to look at transportation costs and fuel costs and shipping costs. They have to look at time and delays. You know, I mean... And so what we have now is a situation where if you need, if you're remodeling your home, for example, right now, uh, good luck getting small electrical parts, good luck getting carpet, good luck getting drapes, good luck getting furniture. I mean, all of these delays in supply chain, nobody really knows. And it's uh, probably, I I mean, 9-11 was a big deal in America. Uh, The crash of 2007, 2008 was obviously a big deal in America, but this I think this is probably the strangest time in America in my lifetime. I'd have to say that. Strange is certainly one way to put it. Um, Jeff, I want to pivot to the the topic that kind of spurred me to to ask you to come on today. And um, it was a tweet that turned into a poll from Dave Smith. But your original tweet was describing how there were two broad types of libertarians. Those who think the 20th century was a liberal triumph and those who think it was an illiberal disaster. And I can kind of guess which one I, 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 that you lean towards. But maybe you can just kind of start by just um, explaining what you mean by that tweet. Well, I mean, the progressive era in the United States goes back more than 100 years. It goes back well into the 1800s. But I mean, we could say it really gained traction with Woodrow Wilson. So that's about 100 years now. So in that sense, and then, of course, it was accelerated by FDR and LBJ and others and all the Republicans, too. Um, so let's just say, though, for convenience, that we've had 100 years of progressive rule and domination in this country. So, well, what did the 20th century give us? It gave us the income tax. It gave us the Federal Reserve. It gave us two world wars. 
It gave us police actions or nation building in Korea and Vietnam, uh, in Iraq, in Gulf War I. Um, it gave us the NSA and the CIA. It gave us the Department of Education, the EPA. Uh, it gave us Social Security and Medicare entitlements, which we're going to be paying for forever and ever. Uh, so, I, you know, obviously, I, I consider all that hugely illiberal. And so there, but there's definitely a split, I think, amongst in, in libertarian thinking. And I like to use libertarian as an adject, adjective, not as a noun, um, where, where some people say, well, there's a deterministic arc to history and things are always getting better. And the past is always retrograde and racist and sexist and, and, uh, n- you know, nativist or nationalist or whatever. And I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that the 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 20th century was an improvement entirely on the 19th, other than in the material realm. I mean, obviously, uh, materially, we're all better, far better off today uh, in terms of medicine, healthcare, dentistry, these kinds of things. Um, in terms of all the material stuff around us, whether that's energy or consumer goods or food or whatever, we're, we're infinitely better off. And that's the result of a, of a lot of people working very hard and, and really what's a, almost a miraculous market uh, function. But in, in a lot of other ways, I think we're worse off uh, culturally, spiritually, socially, uh, family-wise. Um, you know, the, the state, across the West anyway, the state took on a, a an omnipotent role in the 20th century and grew and expanded. And I think it crowded out a lot of the genuine goodwill between people, a lot of the genuine meaning and purpose between people. And I think um, fast forward to what, 2021 now, and we're pretty angry, we're pretty lonely, we're pretty alienated, we're pretty isolated. Um, and I think not all of that, but I think a lot of that has to do with the state. Yeah, there are there are two basic objections, at least in maybe broadly speaking libertarian circles, um, to the idea that the 20th century was uh, a, a disaster of any kind, illiberal the way in the way you describe it. One would be what you mentioned there, like the, the technology thing. And that one I can kind of empathize, sympathize with because I love technology. We're having this uh, conversation right now due to the amazing technology of the Internet. Um, I can, you know, we have great dentistry, great medical care. Um but I, I wonder how much, you know, it, it's so hard to see. It's the, the, the seen and the unseen. So it's it's hard for us to conceptualize the world we might live in had things been different. Had we not had the the progressive 20th century, uh, maybe our technology would be 10 times better. Maybe it would be 100 times better. Who really knows? Uh, so it, you know, that's kind of a, one you can kind of just conjure in your, you know, think about in your own mind. But the the one that's really cringe to me, especially when it comes from, anyone in you know supposed libertarian circles is when they say well it's the century of democracy we have more representation than ever um and all i look at as well how many wars have have uh, have been fought in the name of the the supposed spread of democracy so what do you think when you see especially again you know if i see a progressive say that it's like okay this is what i expect but if i see someone that calls himself a libertarian or is maybe running for office in the libertarian party saying this sort of thing oh What's your reaction when you see that? Yeah, democracy has become a, a real catch-all word, hasn't it? It's become a meaningless word. That's what Orwell called things, a meaningless word for anything good or legitimate. In other words, if an election was democratic, it was somehow legitimate. Um, and of course, I don't buy that. I'm, I mean, I'm plainly a hoppy in, on when it comes to the subject of democracy. But 
Mises wasn't. And I think it's worthwhile to go back and read him and think about him over, you know, a really lengthy career. Uh, it's, you know, six decades worth of writing, thousands and thousands of pages. And so he wrote about democracy um, pretty early in his career. He he wrote two books during the interwar years. He was a, a artillery officer in World War One, what then the Great War in the Austro-Hungarian Army. So he comes home from that and he writes two books between, you know, 1919 and the late 20s, uh, Nation, State, and Economy, and Liberalism. Can I make a plug here? So these two Absolutely. books, if you can see it, these are not that thick, folks. You can read these really <laughs> easily. Uh, both of them are just absolute blueprints for how you craft a true liberal society, the kind of society you and I might like to see. And so, you know, I wish policy leaders today could just read these and digest them. But so he talks about democracy as the the mechanism by which you have the peaceful transfer of political power over time. And I, I mean, you know, he's writing this obviously before Hitler in Germany, um, but Hitler was democratically elected. Uh, and, and so I think he's right about that. I think for most of the 20th century, some big exceptions in the West, I mean, you have Spain, uh, you have the former Yugoslavia, but for the most part, even writing this stuff in the 1910s, uh, and then sort of doubling down on that theme in, in, the in the 1940s when he writes Human Action, and he talks about, again, democracy is the way that we transfer power without having a war which I think we all agree is a good thing. Um, so he doubles down on that later. And I think that's been largely true in the West. For the most part, not entirely, for the most part in the 20th century in the West, uh, politics did not devolve into outright war. For the most part, people sort of accepted the outcomes of elections. Now, that doesn't mean the underlying governments were legitimate or didn't do things that were illegal and horrific. It means that they were somewhat democratic in the sense that they were generally elected by a majority. So um, I think Mises is correct there, but, you know, democracy today just means something, uh, uh, you know, a society for, over, about which uh, Western elites uh, approve, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what it means. It means we approve. Putin's not democratic. Trump's not democratic. I mean, Trump won fair and square. I mean, come on. I don't want to hear about the Electoral College and the popular vote. Trump won. Yeah, Trump actually won pretty handily um, in the Electoral College, even though it was really just, a, a, you know, few, fewer than 200,000 votes in, in those six swing states that he took from Obama's previous record. So it was a tiny amount of people, really, that swung that. But you know, you look at whether whether Trump wins or Biden wins, for example, last year, and you know why should the entire country be thrown into some sort of psychosis, and why should half the country have a nervous breakdown in, in you know three hundred thirty million people j just because a few hundred thousand votes, far less than one percent of the population, went one way or another in a few swing states. I mean, that, that's obviously a crazy and absurd way to run a country. And so um, I think we need to go back and think about, rethink democracy in a mass setting like a country this big. And I got to tell you, um, look, liberalism by Mises, you can read this easily in a weekend. And he lays it out here. I mean, when he's talking about liberalism, he means something very, very different than we think of today. And so just like the word libertarian or libertarianism, I think has been denuded and, uh, and, and turned into something meaningless today. Uh, so is the word liberalism. And 
I mean, yes, we think this is unfortunate, but it is kind of how language works. Language evolves. It's not static. And sometimes it evolves in ways we don't like. But when Mises is talking about liberalism, he, first of all, uh, this won't make Lalberts happy. But first of all, he says we can, we can uh, define the entire program of liberalism with a single word, property. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a lot of libertarians don't like that. They want to talk about liberalism or liberty in terms of sort of your interpersonal, you know, be yourself um, kind of thing. So, so first of all, he defines it by property, but then he goes on and he spends a lot of time talking about self-determination. Okay, and by that he meant the ability of people to break away from a political entity. To he he worried a lot about political minorities, and, and libertarians never seem to wake up to this this obvious fact that they're a political minority, right? Um, it should be he, the most obvious uh, <laughs> most well, obvious but, fact. <laughs> but he cares about that a lot, and he whether whether you're a political minority because of a war that redefined boundaries, because of migrations. Uh, because of your ethnicity, because of your language. Maybe you speak a language which is not the dominant language in the country. I mean, he's talking about the patchwork quilt of, of old monarchical Europe coming into the 20th century and becoming these new nation states. So he says, well, you know, gee whiz, political minorities ought to have the ability to break away. And if you can't walk away from a political arrangement peaceably, then that's not a liberal country. And so I, I, I would suspect, I, I, won't, I would suspect that there are an awful lot of libertarians who think secession is invalid. And I would say that that's a deeply illiberal belief. All right, guys. Well, you have seen it. You have felt it. It is clear that inflation is running rampant. And this, of course, has a lot of people more than ever looking to invest in cryptocurrencies. But one issue that can come with that is, of course, you got to pay taxes on those gains. Well, guess what? That is where our friends at iTrust Capital come in. With iTrust Capital, you can actually trade and earn on cryptocurrencies completely tax-free. That's right. By doing so within an IRA. Uh, IRAs, Roth IRAs are one of the best tax structures out there, one of the best deals. I've had an IRA for years, and now I know I can go to my friends at iTrust Capital to start a cryptocurrency IRA. And it's not just cryptocurrency. You can also self-trade physical gold and silver in an IRA uh, with iTrust Capital. It is really just the best deal going. You can invest in cryptocurrencies and precious metals for completely tax-free gain. Where Whether you hold these assets for the long term or you buy and sell with the market, iTrust Capital's IRA account provides the absolute lowest transaction costs and transparent pricing in the industry by far. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pause this podcast, or maybe you can multitask. I don't know. I I can multitask. Uh, I want you to visit itrustcapital.com to get your completely free insider's report on Bitcoin and crypto IRAs. This costs you absolutely nothing, and this report will have absolutely everything you need to know about the fees, security, 24-7 access, and so much more. And I want you to use promo code LIONS to get your first month for free. That's promo code LIONS. Again, head over to itrustcapital.com, use promo code LIONS, or head over to lionsofliberty.com. Find the show notes for today's episode, click on that link, get that free report, and start investing for your future today. Do you think that libertarians are 
in some way destined to always be a political minority and you know, short, short of them forming their own communities and their own you know, smaller nations or city states or what have you. Um, because I think I, I, I used to be of the mindset, um, particularly in my, my early Ron Paul days around 2007, 2008, where I, I truly believed, well, no, these ideas are so obviously true, so obviously correct, so obviously the best thing for everybody that all we have to do is get out there, you know, share enough Ron Paul videos, start a podcast, you know, t- you know get, get, get the idea ideas out there enough and then you know magically we'll just have a libertarian society and if there's anything that has shown me that that is quite possibly not true and probably not true it's, it's the last 18 20 months or so where i've really started to see okay maybe there is a certain segment of the population maybe it's just the way our brains are wired or what have you that are open to these ideas and once they're introduced to them it kind of you know maybe sparks something in them that was already there but it really does seem to me and i, I try not to be too blackpilled on this because I, I do a podcast about this stuff but you know it does seem to me that there is a majority of the population that is just never going to accept these ideas. Uh, what's your position is that on that as someone else who you know is a part of an organization that that tries to share these ideas? Well, I think you've you've clearly identified the most important question for us today, which is separation versus persuasion. And uh, I was watching the Scott Horton Bill Crystal debate the other night. We had a watch party that was fun, and. Uh, you know, it struck me that Scott was almost falling into this libertarian trap of if you just throw enough facts at people, if you just argue correctly, then they'll have to see these facts and they'll have to agree with you because you've proven your case. And, and Bill Crystal, by contrast, was just speaking in broad platitudes, saying things like, no, look, I don't accept that United States is responsible for blowback and 9-11. I mean, he would just say you know, insanely broad, unsupported things like that. He wasn't debating. He was, he was promoting and crafting a narrative, whereas Scott was debating facts. And I think- They were playing very different games. It, it wasn't even, it was not a debate in any meaningful sense. It was two different conversations. So, you know, we're just similarly in America today, we're watching at least two different movies, if not 10 different movies. So, you know, when we talk about if we just explain socialism to people, if we show them, you know, not only the theoretical case against socialism, which I think Mises made more than better than anyone, I'm biased, um, but also the empirical case of the 20th century, the Russian Revolution, the, you know, what happened in China, what happened in Nazi Germany, uh, you know, you'd think at some point like that's a slam dunk, but yet socialism is is perhaps as popular as it's been in 50 years in America, especially among young people as as a concept. So, you know, it strikes me that we have to look at 2020 as a a really remarkable. I mean, we had, we had governors going after each other on Twitter. We had, you know, a very different situation. You know, 2020, I've said this before, if you spent 2020 in Florida, or if you spent 2020 in Australia or New Zealand, your life was very, very, very different as a result of that. Um, you know, local matters. All crises are local. And so, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think we saw the beginnings in 2020, and it's accelerating today, of, of what I hope is a form of soft secession. And, and w- when we talk about secession, when we talk about breaking up politically, people need to understand this is the, 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 the reason for this is to avoid war and bloodshed. We're not encouraging war and bloodshed. We're not saying let's have a war and break up. We're saying let's break up peaceably. 
let's get over this crazy idea that there's some magic 50 states and that this is, you know, ordained in history or something like that and say political arrangements exist to serve us, not the other way around. I think that's a Tom Woods quote or a paraphrase of Tom Woods. And and I I really believe that's so important. And, and you know, I'm not sure how you convince people of this other than to say, especially to folks on the left, you know, I you th- you think that you're in the you're living in the middle of a progressive triumph or a progressive route, and if you just stick to your guns, you're going to have all fifty states, you know, with with immigration and otherwise, it's going to be one big uh, social democracy, and you're going to have everything you want, and America's going to look a lot more like Europe politically. You know, I I'm not sure that that narrative of inevitability. Um, which has always been a socialist narrative, by the way, this arc of history. Um, I'm not sure that holds water. I think Trump really psychologically damaged the left. I mean, the idea that he would win over Hillary created, I think, a kind of vengeful psychosis, which we're still feeling. And now I think with the vax versus anti-vax thing, um, you know, with masks versus no masks, uh, I, I think this is just a continued form of vengeance. I think this is this is about vanquishing people who who dared to go off script and vote for Trump over Hillary uh and who now dare to to say well I don't want a vaccine. You know, um I, I think this is this is warfare but it's it's low grade. It's still better than real war, don't get me wrong. Um and, and it it's just it's fascinating to me that people can engage in this 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 degree of hatred and hostility for really people they don't even know it's just a caricature when you know i look i'm i'm hard on the left but i'll i'll certainly admit that i in a sense i have a caricature in my mind um it, you know this idea that we can't peaceably at least have a, some aggressive federalism in this country which allows different states and cities and locations to have different rules on things like guns and abortion for god's sake it just strikes me as crazy and the the it strikes me that the only people who could oppose this are people who are dead sure they're winning. So, you know, if you're winning, why give up an inch? Why yield an inch? Why negotiate at all? So I think what we have to do is shake their sense of inevitability and their sense that they're winning. Yeah, it does seem to be a, a really direct line uh, from, I mean, you could probably start it at, at the Hillary Clinton deplorables comment and just go straight through the, through the election of Trump, right into COVID, right into right into you know vaccine mandates i mean it, it just seems like that has been the, the, the progression and it's it's something that's really made me change because I, I gotta admit i was one of those libertarians that for many years that i i would probably repeat the same mantra like libertarians are neither right nor left um they're they're both two wings of the same bird and that is true when it comes that is certainly true when it comes to the 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 Democratic and Republican parties, but I, I think I I often made a mistake of of thinking of just associating the left and the Democrats, the right and the Republicans, and very much having that duopoly mindset. Um, but the last three or four years have really made me think like, okay, it's hard to pretend there's no difference here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really hard to pretend when there's one side that's and again, this is like you mentioned, it is somewhat of a caricature, I suppose, but it does seem to be the general trend that one side basically wants me dead if, if I don't follow the, whatever set of edicts they have and the other, yeah, they don't really care. They, they want to do their own thing. And so it's hard for me not to think, okay, I, I gotta, I gotta at least like these guys that don't want to kill me a little bit better. Yeah. It's awfully tough to view the world through a political lens. If you don't like 
politics or don't think politics ought to be the, the way by which society is organized. And that's certainly my view. I mean, I, I would love to say my politics are no politics. My politics are anti-politics. And that increasingly just sounds dopey and naive. I, I mean, I, you know, we all, we all get sort of stuck on something and I'm middle-aged and it's, it's hard to change. You know, it's hard to change your worldview. But I'm, I think I'm increasingly being forced to. And I think that, that, that force is, is telling me that it's about localism and regionalism, I, I hope. At libertarian-minded people, we tend to overthink things. We tend to look at, you know, nobody cares about policy. I think people were looking at Hillary Clinton, a lot of people in red state America. And they weren't thinking about this in terms of Social Security or, uh, you know, any, anything like that. They, they were just saying, here's a person who hates my guts, right? I mean, it, it, it's just that simple. It was just that visceral. And so I'm voting for this uh, orange reality talk show guy, you know, who's a real estate developer. I mean, you know, I think it, it probably is just that simple for a lot of people. And then fast forward to 2020, and maybe that was flipped. You know, the left was saying Donald Trump is Adolf Hitler. So it doesn't really matter what Joe Biden is. I'm not voting for Adolf Hitler. So, you know, this is just high school on steroids. That's all this is. I'm curious your thoughts on, on how you think, like like you said, I, I even find saying the word libertarian a little cringe sometimes now because this is how, how language changes. But how, how, what would you say that libertarians or liberty-minded folks or what have you should be doing politically? Would you say it would be focusing on, on kind of what you're talking about, you know, secession and separation? Or, you know, obviously I've, I've had this conversation with Tho Bishop earlier this year and he's so primarily focused on not just Florida and keeping Florida free, but, you know, really even more specifically on his, on his county that he lives in because that's where he can really affect things. Uh, and it's very clear to me that, you know, Bo Bishop and I lived very different lives over the last 20 months, and that is due to the local politics. Uh, so it's it's very clear to me that has to be a focus of anyone. But, you know, there are many that are focusing in other areas. You know, there is, a, of course, a caucus within the Libertarian Party named after your institute, and they are really, you know, they, they do a lot of good work locally, too. So I don't want to act like their their main focus is nationally, but, you know, they do have a, a, a plan of sorts or maybe several plans uh, to really make a big push to take over the Libertarian Party, have a national candidate. Do you see any any, you know, utility in that strategy? Um, do you think there is, is um, you know, do you think there's a positive, a possible net benefit to just simply spreading the ideas on a, on a platform, whatever kind of platform a third party can get you? Or would you see that as just sort of a, a distraction from uh, the focus more on, on local politics and secession and, and that sort of thing? Well, I think you, you got to have the ideas because if not, you're just, you're stuck with ad hoc whims, right? I mean, you'll do anything if you don't have any sense of underlying ideas or principles. So I wouldn't be ready to discard that. But I, I do think that, you know, we've, we've seen a great sort happening in the United States in the last 20 months, and people are moving. And, uh, you know, people are seceding, in a sense. I mean, um, you left a place, personally. Um, and that's, that's in part because you voted with your feet. Right. I mean, people it feels are, great. People are flooding into uh, Boise, Idaho. People are flooding into Phoenix, even San Francisco Bay Area. People are flooding into Sacramento. So they're still in, in California, but they're just leaving the Bay Area. People in Los Angeles are flooding into San Diego. People in Manhattan are flooding into New Jersey. You know, someone like me might say, well, you didn't really go that far. You're still basically in New Jersey. But I mean, to them, that's a, a significant move. So people are sort of relocating to the extent they have that ability. And I think that's going to dramatically affect 
local politics is going to dramatically affect the Electoral College because, the, the, look, the whole 20th century politically in the West was about cities gaining power, cities gained residence. Everybody moved to cities throughout the 20th century. And if, if you reverse that, especially if after COVID, a lot of people, a lot more people are going to be demanding to work remotely so they can live where they want to live. You know, if you reverse this trend of people moving into cities and giant urban scapes, and, and, and that starts to, to go the other direction, out towards exurbs and out towards even rural areas, you know, that's going to make, that's going to have a huge impact on the Electoral College, on congressional representation. Um, and it's just going to change the balance of power between cities, which ruled everything. So that that fascinates me, and I hope there's a lot of good in that. I, I, you know, America's vast. We ought to be a lot more spread out. There's no reason we all have to be in Seattle or Manhattan or San Francisco with three roommates, and we're still paying two grand rent. You know, um, it just doesn't make sense in a country this big. So I hope something good comes of that. And and I think right now, the best we can hope for is that certain states are awake enough, and, and even within states, I mean, that states themselves are somewhat arbitrary, but, but counties or cities where you've got, you've got local people looking at things and saying, hey, we need to start protecting ourselves. We need to figure out what is, you know, what could we do locally um, if we had a currency crisis in the United States? Could we have a, a, a gold or silver repository, a Bitcoin repository uh, to have an alternative currency? What could we do locally here with food and energy and water and that sort of thing? Um, and just start to realize that uh, what you know, what you and I might view as common knowledge, but not so common, is the idea that that Uncle Sam, the federal government, is not going to be able to run everything and protect everything. So, you know, I I, I wish I had an easier pat political answer for you, but it, I think it's going to be tough. But I think it's going to be local by necessity, even if not by choice. Well, you know what is by choice, my friends. That is your decision. To grab some amazing, fine Italian coffee from our friends at Lorenzotti Italy. Lorenzotti Italy is the number one place for you to stop and order some fine, premium Italian coffees delivered right to your door in these neat little tins. And if that wasn't enough, you get to do so knowing you're helping a sponsor of this program. And if that weren't enough, you get to order using your Lions of Liberty discount code. That discount code is ROAR, and it gets you 10% off your order. So head on over to Lorenzotti.coffee and use discount code ROAR for 10% off some fine premium Italian coffees. Mm-mm-mm. Yummy, yummy, yummy. At the end of the, of the day, it comes down to the actions people take. So if, if people are taking the action of uplifting their lives, moving out of cities, moving to areas, even if it's a marginal difference like San Francisco to, to, our, to Sacramento or what have you, it's a difference. And that is maybe it's not the same as a vote in a, in a voting booth, but uh, it's probably a lot more effective actually in how and how it actually changes your own life uh, anyway, when you're actually making a physical move like that. Um, one, one more thing I want to go back to that we kind of touched on earlier um, is this concept of, of left and right and where libertarianism sort of fits in there. And, and for many years, I really just, you know, I, I kept in sort of that, that same mantra of, you know, libertarianism is right here and there's the left and the right and we're something totally different. Um, I've, I've de- like I mentioned, I've started to question that over these last few years, where do you see libertarianism fitting within that spectrum? Is, does it fit within that spectrum or is it more on one side than the other to you? Well, I think an anti-state, the idea that society ought to be organized privately and not around the state 
at least to the extent possible. There's, you know, obviously people argue about whether you need national defense and police and courts provided by some sort of government. Okay. That's a different argument. But I do think the idea that society ought to be largely organized privately is properly resides on the right. Uh, I would call modern, I would say modern libertarianism properly resides on the right. I think libertarianism as originally envisioned uh, before the 20th century definitely finds its original home on the left. I, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I also think for at least the first half of the 20th century anyway, prior to the dopey Cold War, um, libertarianism probably was embodied more in member, certain members of the Democratic Party. Um, uh, you know, and and a few good members of the old right in the, who were early Republicans. So I don't I don't discount that. I just think Rothbard and others came along in the 20th century and changed it because just as we said earlier, liberalism and libertarianism as words have changed. I mean, I think today uh, liberalism is indistinguishable from progressivism, and the the the. You know, the two tenets of progressivism today, modern progressivism, are radical egalitarianism and radical redistribution of wealth. So anti-individual um, and anti-property. So I don't see how you view that and say that libertarianism today it resides on the left because the left is, is anti-property in its core. It's it wants to redistribute property. And it's uh, radically egalitarianism, which I, egalitarian, which I think is incompatible with liberty across the board. So, um, you know, that, that would be my take. All right, Jeff, well, it's been great catching up with you. Uh, before I let you go, why don't you just feel free to plug away? Obviously, people can go to Mises.org, but feel free to plug away on anything else you guys have got going on. You guys are always producing just incredible content, uh, republishing books that you know some, I didn't even know existed a lot of the time. Uh, so feel free to plug away on that. And anything else exciting you've got coming up, any events or anything like that you've got coming from the Mises Institute? Well, we've got a couple of things coming up. I think uh, we, we've got an event in uh, two weeks. I'm not sure when this will air, but we've got it, something in two weeks. We're going to be uh, in the Tampa, Tampa St. Petersburg area for a, a really fun day-long thing at a beautiful hotel. Uh, we've got some events later this year with Bob Murphy in Orlando and with Ron Paul in Texas. But, you know, if you've, uh, if you've been following uh, the Mises Institute and you're interested in and maybe reading some Mises, but you're not, not necessarily interested in really heavy econ and diving into some, something like that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, again, recommend liberalism, which you can get from us in paperback really cheap. Uh, ping me on Twitter. I'll get one out to you. You know, whatever. We have it in HTML format, you know, we, for free. You can read it on the site. And it's, it's really, uh, like I said, a blueprint for a real liberal society. It's an easy read. It's an engaging read. You can read it over the weekend. And uh, it's it's not uh, it's not heavy duty economics, so it's it's an eye opening book. All right. Well, there's there's as always there's just a treasure trove of amazing free content uh, over on Mises.org. It just continues to be just an incredible source of knowledge for anyone who hopefully hopefully more more and more as we go along, more people will become more interested in these ideas. So thanks so much for joining me, Jeff. Keep up the great work. All Keep right. on roaring. Thank you, Mark. All right, kiddies. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with the great Jeff Dice of the Mises Institute. Great catching up with him. And I hope you guys enjoy catching up with the rest of the Lions of Liberty crew this week. Of course, Brian McWilliams comes at you each and every Wednesday with his very special acerbic brand of comedy, culture, and liberty with Electric Liberty Land, while John Odie Odermatt wraps things up on Thursdays 
with Finding Freedom. Had a hell of a guest last week uh, with Seth Ferrante. You got to check that one out. Uh, speaking of checking stuff out, I want you to check out a couple interviews I just did as well. Last week, I was on the Year Zero podcast with Tommy Sammons. That one comes at you from the Libertarian Institute. And I was also, I finally made it, guys. I was on Part of the Problem with Dave Smith. That one aired this past Saturday. Highly recommend you guys check it out, both of those interviews. Uh, I have really been, ah, I guess, cathartic is the has been the word for uh, the appearances I've done on some recent podcasts, including Pete's show, Tommy's show, and now Dave, where I've really just, uh, well, I've really got, been able to get a lot of stuff off my chest that I've been thinking for the past year, year and a half, the kind of stuff I don't necessarily get into uh, so much when I'm in, on this platform, conducting interviews, hosting debates, and that sort of thing. So I encourage you to check those out. And if you want to support our work, of course, you can do so at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty, where you got all sorts of bonus audio and video content, including early access to interviews like this one. You can also support us on Locals if you are Patreon adverse at lionsofliberty.locals.com. Also want to encourage you to check out my Substack. I am writing over on Substack. It is called Metanoia. You can find that at markclair.substack.com. That's all I got, my friends. Until next time. Live long and live free.